Uh, last week here at RUF, uh, if you were here, you may remember this. If not, that's all right. Um, but I mentioned that over the course of this semester, as we've gone, been going through the book of Leviticus, uh, chapter 17 begins kind of a second phase of the book of Leviticus. And it begins what most scholars and theologians call the holiness code. And what that meant was everything leading up to chapter 17 um, kind of had to do with God's his rules and his regulations that he had given uh, to his recently freed from slavery people. And he said, hey, I am I'm going to be in your midst. I'm your God. You're my people. And the first 16 chapters are all about how God's people would approach him in worship at the tabernacle. The tabernacle was basically a, a building, a tent that was in their presence. And so there were all these rules about sacrifices and about the priests and, and all kinds of different things. But in chapter 17, it takes this pivot and says, okay, so you have all the, you know, if I could say that you have all the church stuff. Here's all the rules and instructions for the rest of life. Okay, and those aren't quite as separated as, as I've just made it feel. But here's kind of part B of this teaching. And so over the next four weeks, we're going to look at the holiness code through these four lens. Tonight, the sex code. Next week, the friendship code. After spring break, the party code. And then week after that is the caring code. So how do we think about our bodies sexually? How do we think about relationships with others? How do we think about celebration and joy? And how do we think about caring for outsiders? That's what's coming. All right. Think with me for just a moment about your process of getting ready to come to college. Right? Even the, the weeks and maybe even days leading up to when you pack the car either by yourself or with your parents or whatever it was, when you packed the car and left your home and headed to the University of Tulsa. That process involved looking around your room, looking around your home, in your closet, and asking this question, what stays and what goes? What is going to stay back and what's going to come with me? So as you looked at your sports or comic posters on the wall, you had a decision to make. Is this, what I want, is this what I want to be known as in college or not? As you looked in your closet the, at the cute skirts or the high school T-shirts, you had a decision to make. Do, is this the me that I want to be or do I want to go for a different look? As you looked at the, the stuff on your dresser, or let's be honest, in your dresser, you thought, ah, these things are really important to me, but what happens if my new roommate finds it? Conversely, what happens if my mom finds it if I leave it? That's a problem too. So what do I do with all those really important little knickknacks or notes that I've gotten through the years? What stays and what goes? As we head into this section of Leviticus, beginning tonight and over the next four weeks, we have to have that same kind of packing question in our minds that really helps us ask what stays and what goes. What do we hold on to and bring into our lives from the Old Testament? Okay, so in that sense, what stays with us and or what goes? What goes away? What are things that were strictly part of God's people in the Old Testament under the nation of Israel, which was a theocracy? I'm not going to explain all that, but needless to say, there were some significant differences between God's people in the Old Testament and God's people in the New Testament. But here's the big difference. We want to ask that question, but there's one big difference, and it is a big one. Is that when we're packing for college, 
We are the final decision maker about what stays and goes. And the Bible is explicit about this very thing. That that's not the case when it comes to, when it comes to the Bible. That we aren't the sole authority. We aren't the final arbiter of truth and of what we want to be true. And there's, there's hardly a more repulsive thought to our culture today than that very thing. Uh, a number of years ago, a sociologist, he was actually kind of specialized in the sociology of religion. His name was Dr. Robert Bella, and he was a professor at University of California, Berkeley. He coined this phrase called expressive individualism as kind of a mantra in a description of the current culture, uh, current American attitude toward life and religion. And he says this, he says, uh, he observed that Americans have created a culture where individual choice and expression has become so valued that there is no longer any shared life or commanding truths that tie us together. So that, that individual expression has been so triumphed and valued that there's no longer any kind of abiding, far-reaching truths that unite us and bring us together. I'm going to read a, a direct quote from him. And I meant to put this up there, but I forgot, so listen to him. He says, We are moving to an ever greater validation of the sacredness of the individual person, but our capacity to imagine a social fabric that would hold individuals together is vanishing. The sacredness of the individual is not so balanced, is not balanced by any sense of the whole or a concern for the common good. Now, why do I bring that up? I do so because we need to recognize that societies and cultures absolutely do change over time. And that really, that's what a sociologist does. They study societies and cultures over time. And we also need to understand that we, all of us in this room, we are very much a product of our culture. That's not to say you agree with everything that's happening more broadly in culture, but culture is simply the air that we breathe. It's the ideas that are circling around us, the innovations that we're experiencing and taking part in, the ideals. We're part of culture, even if in some ways we push back on the culture. So, tonight, when we hear God's word about sexuality, I'm just going to acknowledge for you that you will probably be experiencing things inside that feel like dissonance. And you're going to be wanting to put the brakes on and say, no, 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 no. Like that goes. That doesn't say that goes. And what I at least want us to do, and my whole goal tonight, is to help us try and understand that staying and going thing. And how does it work? And how do we decide what stays and what goes? So, admittedly, um, there are so many things we could say about what we're about to read tonight. So many things. We could fill up a whole weekend of lectures about this stuff and more. So I can't say everything. So please bear with me in that. I can't say everything. Another thing is that because I want to be so clear about what I'm about to say, this is going to feel and sound a bit more teachy than preachy. Okay, it's going to feel a bit more like instruction and me just kind of coming at you than sort of flowery, funny stories and all of that. And that's intentional because I want you to not miss what I'm trying to get at. And I don't want to in any way for you to think that I'm making things lighthearted that are pretty serious. Okay, so that, with those disclaimers, let me read this passage and we'll look at it. 
Leviticus 18, beginning verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall, you shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. And then I skip down to verse 18. I'll explain that in a minute. And you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, and so make yourself unclean with her. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Moloch, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And you shall not lie with any animal, and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to any animal to lie with it. It is perversion. Do not make for yourselves unclean by in, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things for by all the for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean and the land has become unclean so that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants but you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you for the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations, so that the land became unclean, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the person who does them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you, and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. So before we jump into the details of this, I want us just to notice what God, how God sets this up in the first five verses. So just glance back down there, if you will, on your sheet. Let's see that three times he reminds them and says, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord. He is grounding everything that he's about to say in this reality. I am for you. I have already rescued you and redeemed you from slavery in Egypt. I am decidedly in love with you. I am for you. I'm your God. You're my people. He's reminding them of their relational status with him. So he gets in there and says, we're family. Everything I'm about to tell you flows out of that reality. And then he goes down to verse 5, and this is a biggie. He says, I'm giving you these rules to keep so that you may live. And in that, God is acknowledging, in that whole section right there, verses 1 through 5, God is acknowledging that the people in Egypt, the ones that they had come from, that they had practiced a lot of these things, and that the people in Canaan, who they were about to enter into their land, he's saying they do them too. And so he's given them this warning. He's saying, look... I know you've seen these things in the past. I know you're about to see some of these things now, and I'm certain some of these things are probably already at work among you. But I'm the Lord your God, and you are to be a different kind of people from them and them. So what is in here? What does it say? Let's jump in. I'm just going to list these out, okay? I'm just going to look at the text and list them out for us. The first one right there that we see is that God prohibits incest. 
from verse 6 through verse 17, this is laid out. And the reason I didn't read all those um, is really for time's sake. You can go back and look at it. It just lists off like all sorts of family relations where incest would be prohibited, um, namely all of them. And so, um, you know, I don't think I have to stand up here and make a big case. Like we can kind of get this, that this isn't um, good. But basically they were not to marry a relative and have any sort of sexual relationship with them. Okay, and I'm going to do this on all these points. So that's the Old Testament. That's the Old Covenant with God's people Israel. What about in the New Testament? In the New Testament, we see this this teaching upheld. We see it in 1 Corinthians 6 uh, in the church in Corinth. Paul had apparently received word that some people in the Corinthian church were practicing incest. And so in 1 Corinthians 6, when he addresses that, he said, Hey, I've heard that some of you are sleeping with your father's wife. Don't do that, right? And he commands them to take that serious and enact discipline, to, to bring that person into order and say, and you know, discipline isn't a negative thing in the Bible. It's a corrective measure. So he's saying you need to correct that behavior. You need to exhort that person toward change. Okay, so very quickly and plainly, incest is forbidden in the Old Testament. It's also forbidden in the New Testament. Secondly, God prohibits taking a rival wife. This is what we think of as polygamy, verse 18. This is, um, can be complicated big, biblically because it actually looks like polygamy was tolerated for a time, but it always led to problems. By the time we get to Leviticus 18, God is making explicit something that was either implicit or um, had not been codified to that point. Okay, so in Leviticus 18, it says, okay, no polygamy, that's a no-go, we're not going to do that. We see this upheld all throughout the New Testament, so much so that I'm not even sitting here and quote verses. It always talks about one husband, one wife, one, 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 right? There's no multiple marriage things. Okay, third one. God prohibits sex with a woman during her menstruation. Plot thickens here, verse 19. This is the verse that people quote... Um, whenever they want to go ahead and throw out everything else in this chapter. Because they'll say something like this. How can Christians say that homosexuality is wrong when just a few verses before it says not to have sex during a woman's menstruation? Convenient, they would say, that you just ignore that verse. So what we're going to do tonight is we're not going to ignore it. We're not going to ignore it. Let's talk about it. Let's don't just immediately write it off and be like, oh yeah, that's just done away with. We need to talk about why it is done away with. We need to look at it. So, how has Christ fulfilled this? The key phrase in verse 19 is menstrual uncleanness. The question then for us is whether or not a menstrual period or a menstrual cycle still makes someone unclean in the New Testament. What we've gone to great lengths, I hope, to show you over this semester is that By the time we get to the New Testament period with the coming of Jesus and his eventual death and resurrection, is that not just things about menstrual uncleanness, but all of the laws that talked about cleanliness and and purity and ritual purity and who could come into the temple and the tabernacle and all this stuff, all of that stuff is fulfilled in Jesus. And thus, it has no longer any binding authority for the New Testament. For Christians, and we live in the New Testament age. Okay, so when, when Jesus does that, and there's no more clean or unclean system, 
Women are no longer ceremonially unclean, and therefore they're, they're no longer unfit to come into God's presence at church. That's fine. And so this law is done away with in the New Testament. Now, look, there may be other reasons why you may not want to have sex uh, in marriage during uh, your menstrual cycle, those may be hygienic, those may be um, some sort of health reason, maybe plenty of other reasons, but it's no longer a religious moral reason not to. Okay. Fourthly, D, God prohibits adultery, verse 20. Again, it says unclean. So on the surface level, we might think that this is the same as the one above. But several weeks ago, I explained this very thing, and this is going to sound kind of like smoke and mirrors, but hold with me. I explained that not all uncleanness was sin. Unclean does not equal sin. For instance, in the book of Leviticus, there are situations where you might accidentally touch the carcass of an animal. That carcass was unclean. And by accidentally touching it, you would become unclean. But that wasn't a sinful act, you touching it. It wasn't like morally repulsive. Cleanliness, if you might remember, had to do with your state of if you could enter God's presence or not in the tabernacle. Okay? So cleanliness isn't necessarily a sin issue. But I also said this, that all sin, anything that was a direct confrontation to God or a direct violation of his commandments, all sin also made you unclean. Okay, so not all uncleanliness was sin, but all sin made you unclean. So when this passage says that God prohibits adultery because it makes you unclean, the reason it makes you unclean is because adultery is sin. That, that sleeping with someone else's wife or sleeping with someone that's not your wife or husband, right? Um, that is the problem here. Okay, so that's what it was back in. It was forbidden. Back then it was forbidden. What about in the New Testament? Definitely gets highlighted and even intensified in the New Testament. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching on sexuality. And he says, look, I'm telling you, you've heard that whoever lies with a woman commits adultery with her. I'm, I'm telling you even more than that. That if you even have lustful thoughts for someone, you've committed adultery with that person in your heart. And so Jesus has taken this prohibition against sexuality expressed outside of marriage, and he's raising the stakes. And that's the reason why, if you've been around the church for long or teaching on the Bible, uh, you kind of know the Christian ethic is like, hey, we need to be serious about sex because Jesus is serious about sex. And that's why you've probably heard me talk about, hey, look, pornography is not casual. That hookups with people around campus, that's not innocuous and not a big deal. It is a big deal because Jesus says it's a big deal. Some of the questions are, why does he say it's a big deal? We can't get into all that tonight. But needless to say, the New Testament even affirms and, it affirms and even heightens the parameters here. Still valid for us today. E, number five. God prohibits killing our children. Now, that may seem obvious that he would forbid that. The question may be, why does that show up in this list of like sexual deviations? Well, it's interesting um, that a lot of the, the sexual code 
also kind of overlaps with the promotion of family. The promotion of family family life. Because, as we know from a lot of other places in the book of Leviticus, God is decidedly for life. He's for the propagation of the species, for life to continue and to go on. And children are a direct way that we would continue and go on. Literally. And so he's saying, don't be like your neighbors, the Egyptians and the Canaanites, and sacrifice your children to the god of Moloch. And archaeologists have discovered all sorts of mass graves and burial sites, which most likely are are mass um, sacrificial sites for this god. A false god they worshipped back. Uh, Many different countries and civilizations worshipped. So, prohibited in the New Testament also. Very much weight and value given to children. Way more so than the surrounding cultures. Six, God prohibits bestiality, verse 23 And the unclean talk here is the same as adultery. The wrongness about bestiality, about having sexual relation with an animal, is that it's a perversion. It's not normal. It's out of God's order. Okay? We can talk about that more if you want later. Lastly, in the biggie, God prohibits homosexual sex. Let me just say this before I get into all this. I'm not spending longer on this because it's worse. I'm spending longer on this because this is our cultural moment. This is the biggie for us. And so I want to, I want to spend time here. I want to give you the, the respect that this conversation deserves. Okay? So we're going to spend a little bit longer here. Um, <clears throat> what I want to talk about is why God would have prohibited it then, and then to make the connection to the New Testament is why God would still prohibit it now. And then I want to ask us, where do we go from here? So two reasons why God prohibited it then. First, he appeals to the natural order of creation. Look at the verse there in verse 22. He says, a man shall not lie with a man as with a woman. The implicit statement there is made to creation that the norm, the created norm, is a man with a woman. That's how the bodies fit. That's how life would go forth through semen and egg, procreation. God is for life. Okay. Again, that's um, that's a implied there, implicit. More than it doesn't just say it explicitly, but that is very much in that. The second thing that's in this statement, it is more explicit, is that it says that homosexuality is an abomination. Okay, I get it. That's a harsh word. A couple things about it. One is that homosexuality is not the only abomination. If you look in verses 24 through 30, that word is mentioned four times. And it says, these abominations. It broadens the category of what is an abomination. What is it? Anything that deviates from God's order and design for sexuality. And that very much includes heterosexual abominations as well. Second thing, what is so abominable about it? So all semester, again, at different times and different passages, we've seen that God values and promotes those things in, in creation, in the created order, that move toward wholeness, order, and life. And he prohibits or warns against things that move toward disorder, toward disintegration or brokenness, and death. 
So the abomination in the, the forbidding of homosexual acts is that it, it moves against the created order and it moves against the propagation and extension of life. I mean, literally, it, it, to be plain about it, two people of the same sex, of the same gender, they can't create life. And so God says, that is one of the reasons why we can't affirm this, why he's against it. Okay, it's unnatural. So what about in the New Testament? What do we do with this after Jesus comes? Does he fulfill something that now makes this permissible? Jesus, and therefore Paul, who studied, learned from Jesus. Jesus affirms this teaching. In Matthew 19, Jesus appeals to Genesis, to the creation and the created order, and says, Therefore... A man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So Jesus goes all the way back to the beginning, which is what Moses was doing here in Leviticus. He's looking back to created the created order and saying, that's where I'm going to base this, and I'm going to come, and Jesus is affirming, being God, he's affirming what he had created. The Apostle Paul goes on to affirm this as well. He goes on and says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, and I've put it up on the screen for you. Paul says, Or do you not know that the the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And I would say that at this point, some scholars... Um, they will look at this phrase that's, tra- that's translated here, men who practice homosexuality, and they'll say that that word there, that it's, it's not seen anywhere else in Greek literature. And I want to be honest about that and say they're partly right, that they are right. It's not seen anywhere else. But what they want to go on and to say with that is that we can't know what Paul's talking about. And so all sorts of meaning to that word gets imported. And to that, I would say, not so fast. Because here's what we know, and this is, um, kind of bear with me for a second. We're going um, to go Greek for us, not to show you that I'm smart, because I'm not. Um, but I'm going to show you what Paul's doing here. So that word right there, arsenikotai, that is the word that encapsulates men who practice homosexuality. It's one word in the Greek language. That's the word that scholars will say, Any other Greek writing to that point has never used this word. Paul's making a word up, to which we would say, yes, he is. What does it mean? Well, if you look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, okay? Now, this was translated into Greek. The Old Testament was translated into Greek before Jesus was born, well well before Paul was born. It's called the Septuagint. This is not disputed. This is a common thing that people know about. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, it says this, Arsenos koiton. Look, y'all, you don't have to be a Greek scholar to see what Paul has done in 1 Corinthians, and it's the same thing he does in 1 Timothy 1.8. He's looking back at Leviticus 18 and saying, okay, that thing that's being talked about there." That's the word I'm using for what God is still prohibiting in the church. 
Luke Timothy Johnson is a, is a scholar at Emory, a, a biblical New Testament scholar. And interestingly, he is, he is a pro-gay advocate. He is for homosexuality. Um, and, and so I want to say that on the front end because what he says is very interesting and actually telling about the scholarly argument about this text. I've got it up there on the screen. Several years ago he said this. The task demands intellectual honesty. I have little patience with efforts to make Scripture say something other than what it says through appeals to linguistic or cultural subtleties. Okay, let me pause there. What he's saying is that people who want to write this passage off in Corinthians and some of the other Testament passages as just saying like, oh, well, that was a relic from the past. That was something they did back in the old days. But we've clearly progressed and arrived in like the Bible is saying something very different now. What he's saying is, that's wrong. You can't just write out, like, the Bible says what it says. Okay, I'm going to go on. The exegetical situation is straightforward, meaning the text is straightforward. We know what the text says, but what are we to do with what the text says? I think it is important to state clearly that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of Scripture and appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. And what exactly is that authority? We appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience and the experience thousands of others have witnessed to, which tells us that to claim our own sexual orientation is, in fact, to accept the way in which God has created us. By so doing, we explicitly reject as well the premises of the scriptural statements condemning homosexuality, namely that it is a vice freely chosen, a symptom of human corruption and disobedience to God's created order. Why do I say that? Because I want you to see that an honest, progressive, biblical scholar is saying the, text, the textual case is clear. The Bible forbids this. But notice what he appeals to. He says, how do... He's like, that's what the text says, but, but it no longer... We're throwing it out the window. Why? He appeals to expressive individualism. He says, because we know from... We know from our experience, that this is not true anymore. And what I would suggest is happening in his interpretation, and many people like him, is that they're taking the cues from our cultural moment and reading back into Scripture something that the timeless God has said is a truism for all times and all cultures for all people. So all I'm saying is that if we're going to be honest tonight, at least as honest as Dr. Timothy Johnson was, that we have to recognize the, straight, the straightforward commands of both the Old and New Testament are, are actually pretty clear about this. They say what they say, um, and, they, and they say that God prohibits homosexual activity. So what do we do with this? In John 8, 3 through 11, that's where we're going to go to deal with this. I printed it on the front of your handout. Um, Jesus encounters a mob who is determined excuse me, to execute a sexual offender that they find in their day. In that case, it was a woman who had been caught in adultery. So how does Jesus instruct us to deal with sexual brokenness as we find it? Six things here we see. First is that Jesus indicts religious hypocrisy. He indicts the religious hypocrites here. He calls the Pharisees 
righteous indignation sin. And he demands that as as people who claim to have religious sentiment, that we look at ourselves first and we judge ourselves first. And so look, for those of you um, in here who would call yourself Christians, please put aside any sort of self-righteousness when it comes to your sexual ethic. Please just put it away. It has no place in God's kingdom. And that includes homophobia. Put it away. Jesus would abhor that. He would abhor it. The second thing is that Jesus opposes violence against those that we judge to be unacceptable or spiritually, socially outcast in some way. Sexually outcast. It's unequivocally wrong for either side in this picture in John to use violence against anyone else. And Jesus steps right to the middle of that. And so, if you're a Christian here, take your cues from the one you say you follow. If you see anyone demonizing or speaking ill about or talking down to or, or being ugly with someone, really, in, in any situation, you should step in. Certainly in a situation like this. We stand up for people. That's what Christians are known for. We, we step in and affirm their dignity and say, you can't talk to that person like that. They are a person. They're a human and they have value. Third, Jesus actually upholds the biblical law. Notice that he, call, he calls what the woman is doing here, he calls it sin. He doesn't backpedal from it, he doesn't change the language on it, and he says that her sin must be dealt with. This sentiment is, is hard for the gay community, um, because when you look at this, it, it seems like that the Bible is affirming some sort of discrimination on this. But I, I'm going to go out on a line out on a limb here. I think a lot of the reason that the gay community has felt this way from the Christian community is that the Christian community has been woefully inadequate about calling the normal sexual sins, the heterosexual sexual sins, as ugly as they are. Look, divorce is ugly. It's terrible. Adultery is ugly and terrible. Pornography is ugly and terrible. All the things that you struggle with, which you might say are normal... The Bible would say they are ugly and they are sin, and categorically they are not different from something who, someone who struggles in the homosexual way. They're categorically not different. And as a church, we need to affirm that and say, that's true, we have not been good at this. Next. Jesus holds everyone here accountable for their actions and motives. He's judicious. He doesn't look at her behavior any differently. He doesn't exonerate the Pharisees and give them a pass because they're religious people or somehow legally correct in what they're doing. Fifthly, Jesus calls for repentance and he offers forgiveness and he points to the, to the hope for change. Jesus holds out the promise in this passage that reconciliation with God is always possible And that transformation of life is always hoped for. Let me be clear, though. Transformation of life for the Christian who either has engaged in homosexual acts or who struggles with homosexual temptation. Transformation does not necessarily mean that you will magically, suddenly, or even someday start longing for the opposite sex. That is not what transformation necessarily means. It may mean that, 
But heterosexuality is not the goal of Christian holiness. It's not. Jesus says that if we follow him, our life is to be a life of ongoing repentance in any and every way that we experience sin and its temptation. We're to repent of whatever is disordered about our life. Lastly, Jesus intervenes and he preserves this woman's life. And then he ultimately entrusts her final vindication or judgment to God. And so what that means for you in this room tonight, if you're a Christian, is that your responsibility and your response to gay friends should be to enter into their lives, to listen if they're willing to talk, and to learn what you can about them as people. And you should learn to to engage with them in their struggle, if if indeed it is a struggle. Um, You should enter in and you should do three things very clearly. Encourage, encourage, and encourage, because that is a unique fight and struggle, which is brutally hard. I'm not saying that the things you may deal with aren't. I'm just saying that if that person, if they are seeking to follow Jesus in this regard in their life, you have to realize that there is this whole section of their life experience which they are saying, I guess that I'm not going to get to do that if I follow Jesus. And I challenge you to think of anything else in your life which, which even comes close to that sort of difficulty. And so they need your friendship, they need your attention, they need your care and your love and your concern. They need the real you, not some coddling version of you. And they need to know that you struggle in real and profound ways too. Otherwise, they're going to feel like they're on an island. I know that some of you in this room struggle with this. I know some of you in this room have given in to sexual impulses in this way and lots of other ways. And to all of you, I want to offer you once again, I want to offer you Jesus. Not as someone who's a magic worker who waves a wand and everything is all of a sudden better, whatever that means. I want to offer you Jesus from Scripture as the one that we bring all of our disordered desires and and messed up, broken lives of sexuality. We bring them all to him and we say, you have the words of life. And apart from you, there is no life. And friends, Jesus will have you. You cannot out his grace. You cannot do anything that surprises him or that makes him cast you off forever. If you're willing to come to him and say, I need you, I want you, he will have you. And that's what's held out in the gospel. And may God give us courage to follow him and to trust him in that. Let me pray for us.